Everybody is uh, settling down and finding their seat. Let me go over the announcements. Uh, just a reminder that Vacation Bible School is July 22nd to 24th from 9 to 12. Do you mean p.m. or a.m.? Oh, okay. Should be 9 a.m. to 12. 12 p.m., yes. Okay, it looks like it was 9 from 9 to 12 p.m. at night. I'm going, I don't think there'll be very many kids here at that time. 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Contact Mark Friedrich if you're interested in helping. Also, we need prep school teachers. Also, if you're interested in helping out there, you can contact contact Mark. And you can go to the website to find out information about the upcoming uh, Egypt tour and the tour in about a year going to Israel as well as Greece. Check out uh, that information. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, it's our custom to make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the word. Scripture teaches us that we're either walking by the Spirit or we're walking according to our sin nature. And the way to recover is to confess sin. Throughout the Scripture, the issue in fellowship with God and walking with the Lord is to be spiritually cleansed. This occurs when we confess sin. Uh, Scripture says that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. But 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we admit or acknowledge our sins to him, then instantly we are forgiven of those sins and then cleansed from all unrighteousness. So before we begin, we always make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. So we have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's such a privilege to be able to study your word, to live in a country where we still have freedom. Father, we pray that that freedom would continue, that we may live our lives peaceably, and that we may be able to proclaim the truth of your word, proclaim the gospel, and carry out the mission the Lord Jesus Christ has given us without fear of any kind of government interference or any kind of persecution. But, Father, above all, we pray that whatever we might face, that we might do it on the basis of your word, and therefore we know that we must study your word, internalize your word, that we must put on the full armor that you have provided for us, that we may be able to stand even in the evil day. Now, Father, as we study tonight, we pray you'd help us to understand what we're studying, to be able to internalize it, to boil down what the Scripture has said so that we can recall it to mind and in terms of our reading, our study, 
and living out our spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are studying Second Peter. This is our third lesson in Second Peter. In the first lesson, we dealt with a lot of introductory issues. Last week, we looked at an overview, just to fly over, uh, where we get the overall focus on uh, what Peter's message is. And it's a warning that fake teachers, since we have fake news and everybody uses that term now, we have fake teachers, fake teaching, fake theology that Peter warns about. At the time he writes this, he sees it as something that is going to rise soon and in the future and be a threat to the spiritual life and a threat to those to whom he is writing and a threat to the stability of the church, a threat to the truth of God's word. And his focus is on the fact that we have to grow. We have to grow, he says in Second Peter 3.18, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't think it's a mistake that this is one of the last things that Peter says, because he, he will go uh, to be crucified by Nero not long after he wrote this epistle. And this is his parting shot. And one thing that we'll learn tonight is that Peter came to a, a profound understanding of the grace of God. And so tonight, as we be, begin this third lesson... I want to talk about who Peter was. And I did this when we started 1 Peter, and I took three lessons to do it. So if you want a little more detail than what I'm giving now, then you can go back and listen to those three lessons. But I find that for a lot of us, it's good to just get a good synthesis and con uh, condensed version of a lot of things that we study, just so we can really put it together and so that we can have a, a good overview. So I'm going to just look at this tonight, a way in which we can remember who Peter was. The epistle opens with a salutation stating the author of this epistle as Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So we'll take a couple of weeks to go through the background of that statement and why that is so important. Now, as we look at the key events in the life of Peter, as I'm thinking about this, and I don't know what it is, is it's autocorrect or what, but I have changed this slide about 15 times today, and it keeps wanting to put a CC in there. Let me get out of this, because I'm going to correct it one more time. It keeps wanting to put a double C there, and I keep putting a period in there, and the next thing I know... I look at it, and it changed. See, this time it took the periods out. I don't know. We're going to look at Peter B.C., that is, Peter before Christ, before he met the Messiah. Second thing we're going to look at is Peter's search for the Messiah. Then third, we're going to look at Peter as one of the twelve disciples. What we learn about Jesus, I mean, what we learn about Peter in the Gospels and then fourth, we're going to look at Peter as an apostle in the early church. And then finally, we're going to look at some traditions about Peter. So those five things we're going to cover, uh, cover tonight. So what do we know about Peter, B.C., before Christ? There, it didn't change that one. Okay, now here's a map so you can get a little bit of an overview orientation of Israel. This is in the north. This whole area up here was known at the time of Christ as Galilee. 
And this is where you see the title of that region right here. It's set vertically. And here you have this little, over here on the coast, this is Mediterranean. Over here you have this little uh, swerve going on on the coastline. That's where Haifa is located, which is the largest uh, and the only deep water port in the, in the uh, eastern Mediterranean. And that's at the mouth of the uh, Kishon uh, River here that's well known by the time of Deborah and Barak and as well, late, as well as later, uh, Mount Carmel is located on this ridge here, and that's where Elijah called down uh, fire from heaven. But this is the Esdralon Valley. Many, many things happen there. And then you go up here on the Sea of Galilee, and on that northwest, more north coast is where Capernaum was located, and due north is where Bethsaida was located. Now, Bethsaida is where Peter was from originally. This is where he was born. And then as an adult, he was married, and he lived here in Capernaum. And many of the events that took place in the Gospels happened in and around the Sea of Galilee, and many of the things that happened in relation to Peter's life in the Gospels, what, we're, what we'll be talking about tonight, happened in and around the Sea of Galilee. This gives you an aerial uh, photograph of that area. So Bethsaida would be located on the northern coastland, which is about where my arrow is there. And then if you come around to the left, uh, you get right into this area here. And this is where, uh, uh, about where Capernaum was located. The width of the, uh, of the Sea of Galilee here is uh, about, I think it's, it looks like it's about three or four miles across. So it's pretty wide and it's pretty extensive. Now, at the beginning, we learn who, who Peter is. He's referred to as Simon or Simon Peter. And Simeon is a name that meant hearkening or hearing with acceptance, hearing to obey. And he is referred to as Simon Barjona, which means Simon, son of John. We don't know who his mother was. She's not named. We just have the name of his father, uh, who is John. He had one brother that we know of, and that's Andrew. And we learn about them in the first chapter of John as Jesus uh, comes, to, uh, comes down to the uh, Jordan River where John the Baptist is baptizing, and we learn that both Peter and Andrew are followers of John the Baptist. So they have demonstrated a very, uh, very deep interest in spiritual things, looking for the Messiah, following the message of John the Baptist to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That wasn't a message of salvation. That was a challenge to Israel to change. That might imply the need to trust in God for their individual salvation, but it also implied that they needed to turn away from uh, idols, away from legalism, away from tradition, and back to God, a word that was rich in meaning from a uh, an Old Testament Hebrew concept and meant to turn. This is what God says several times. Peter, um, excuse me, Paul uses a, uh, a Greek word on a strepho in First Thessalonians to talk to them and saying they turned from idols to worship the living God. It is not an emotional thing. It's not turning. 
from sin. That's not ever the object. It is turning away from the non-worship of God or worship of idols or something else to the worship worship of God. And so that was John the Baptist uh, John the Baptist message. And what we learn about Peter is that he grew up in Bethsaida in Galilee. Uh, which was a fishing village. Now, when we think about Peter and John as fishermen and we look at the size of the boats that they had, which were not very long, about as long as from me to that door on the back over here, that we don't think of this as, as something big, but this was a commercial operation. They were not just a couple of guys going out and throwing nets. This was a, a major business. He was in partnership. He and Andrew were in partnership with James and John, uh, the, who are also going to be disciples and apostles. So this was their business, and they were fairly successful in their business. We would classify them probably as, uh, you know, middle class for that time and that era. And the reason I point that out is because one of the things that we studied when we looked at the introduction of Second Peter was that because of the style of Greek that's used in First Peter and a slightly different style in Second Peter, there's been the theory since the 19th century by scholars that, that a poor fisherman from Capernaum would not be as adept at Greek as the writer of these epistles. And that just shows a certain amount of academic arrogance and uh, scholastic arrogance, I think. I know many people who are not necessarily well-educated, but because of the area where they grew up, they grow up being uh, very adept at two or more languages. So they grow up in an area that's bilingual. You go down to uh, the Texas border area, you go to some other areas in Texas, you go to Europe, you'll have many people will grow up speaking three, four, or five languages, reading and writing them well, and they may not necessarily have a great formal education. They may be tradesmen, they may be, uh, uh, they may work with their hands, who knows what they may be, they may be farmers, they may uh, be work, owning a vineyard or working a vineyard, not necessarily what we'd classify as well-educated, but because of the environment where they live, they know how to speak two or three or four or five languages very, very well. And Peter grew up in Galilee, and in Galilee you had a, a certain Gentile population. Greek, Koine Greek, was the lingua franca for much of the eastern part of the, western, of the Roman Empire. And you also had Aramaic, which was very common in much of the area of the Middle East at that time. So we can expect most people were very fluent in both of those languages. And by the time Peter comes along and writes First and Second Peter, he's much older, and he would have improved in uh, both the reading and writing of, of Greek and Aramaic as well. So this was not something that was unusual. We know approximately where Peter's house was in Capernaum. He lived very close to the, uh, to the synagogue that was there. And as a result of that, there was, uh, they were continuous classes that were taught about Torah, about uh, many other things related to Jewish tradition and Jewish history. And so he had every opportunity to be uh, well-educated through the synagogue school. 
We also know that Peter was married. The idea of celibacy for the uh, uh, primacy of Peter is just not biblical. Peter had a wife. He was married, according to 1 Corinthians 9, 5. He traveled with his wife. He traveled to Corinth. He brought his wife with him. Mark 1.30 talks about the fact that his mother-in-law was sick, and so to have a mother-in-law, most cases, you have to have a wife. I'd say over 95% of the time, you have to have a wife to have a mother-in-law. So Peter was married. And he had moved to Capernaum, and this was the center of the business that he and his brother Andrew and James and John uh, ran. And so his, his um, let me see, at that time, Jesus was going to rename him Kephas, which means the rock. The Greek is Petros, so he is going to, the Aramaic is Kephas. There's not a, the the K is in Greek, and it's transliterated into Roman, I mean into Latin, with a C, but it's not a soft C. So we hear people say Cephas, but it's Kephas. Uh, there's no such pronunciation. It's a hard C. We tend to, in English, we tend to make C's softer, more soft than hard, but you've got to go with the original, and so it's Kephas. Uh, Peter, Jesus renames him Kephas in Mark 3.16, and I've already covered that about being married. Now, the second thing is that he began a search for the Messiah. We don't know how long before. He was very interested in the prophecies. He was very interested in the Hebrew Scriptures teaching about the coming of a Messiah. There was a general expectation, we know, from historians at that time, that there was an expectation of someone coming, something happening, and there was a prophetic expectation in Israel. And then with the arrival of John the Baptist as the forerunner of Jesus, and that he was the voice crying in the wilderness, that there was the expectation uh, enhanced that the Messiah would soon be coming. And so Peter began to search for the Messiah, and he goes from his home area up here at Capernaum, and the first time we meet him, he is down here, this larger circle, uh, down at the where the Jordan begins to empty into the Dead Sea. And this is the area where John the Baptist was baptizing. And this is all described in the first chapter of John. And a little bit earlier than the events there, uh, you have Jesus being baptized by John. So I think in the chronology of Jesus' life at this point, Jesus had come down, the other Gospels, the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about Jesus coming down to be baptized by John the Baptist, and then immediately the Spirit led him into the wilderness where he is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. The events described in John chapter 1 are a little later, and we read starting in about verse, let's skip down to about verse uh Verse 19, this is a testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed that he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet. And they asked him who he was, and he quotes from Isaiah and says, I'm just the voice of one crying in, in the wilderness. And then the second day, they, uh, 
John saw Jesus coming toward him and announces who he is and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he says, you have to pay attention to verse 30, This is he of whom I said, past tense. He's not talking about this current event. He's talking about something that's already happened in the past, which is when Jesus came down to be baptized. He said, he said, this is the one of whom I said in the past, after me comes a man who is preferred before me. Now, what's interesting here, when you get to verse 32, it says, John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. And when he says, I saw... In the Greek, it's a perfect tense. Now, perfect tense means it's a completed action in the past. Okay, so he's emphasizing the completion of that action in the past. So he's talking about the descent of the Spirit at some time in the past, not within these, these couple of days. So this is after the temptation of the Lord, and he's describing that, looking back on it. And then on the third day of these three days mentioned here in John, he look, he sees Jesus come again, and again he announces him as, Behold the Lamb of God. And there are two disciples with him, and the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And these two disciples are Peter and his brother, uh, brother Andrew. So this is when they recognize Jesus as the Messiah on the basis of the testimony of John the Baptist, and so they, uh, they follow him. And so Andrew's the first one. We're told in verse 41, uh, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which being interpreted as Christ. And he led him to Jesus. Jesus, looking at him, said, You are Simon, the son of Jonas. Thou shalt be called Kepha, which is translated as stone. So this is uh, the, when that event took place that Jesus renames him or gives him the name Kepha, which is also then translated into Greek with Petros. So he becomes uh, Simon Peter, or, or in Hebrew it would be uh, Simeon Kepha. So this is when he is first uh, in Galilee, this is before the wedding at Cana. This is before Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passover the first time. And this is when he, Peter comes to realize who Jesus is as the Messiah. It's not long after that that Peter is going to be called as one of the disciples. This is the third event that is important in these uh, these events. I'm going to have nine events here that cover the Gospels, and then we're going to have ten events to cover the period of Acts. So Peter becomes one of the disciples, and he calls the these twelve men to forsake all and to follow him. This is described in Mark 4, 18 to 22, and Mark Matthew 4, 18 to 22, Mark 1, 16 to 20, and Luke 5, 5 to 11. And this is when Jesus tells them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men, according to Mark 1.17. So when we think about uh, Peter uh, now as one of the twelve disciples, we think of his being called as one of the disciples and he's going to become a fisher of men. So these are the passages I just mentioned a minute ago 
Peter's called as a disciple, and he's going to follow Jesus. Now, what happens when he starts to follow Jesus? Because he comes as part of the Twelve, and this is Jesus' training camp to train the disciples for their future ministry. Now, they don't understand any of that yet, but that's what's going on. They are to be given certain missions, sent out on certain uh, evangelistic missions during the time of the incarnation, and then after the resurrection, they're going to become the apostles. But that's that's all in the future. So we're looking at these nine key events. When you think about Peter, you can think about a few others, but I tried to synthesize this down a little bit. And these are the major events that most of us think about that Peter, the episode of Peter walking on the water, this is in Matthew 14, 28 to 31, and it is a time when Jesus is teaching the disciples about faith. They are out on the Sea of Galilee. A storm comes up. The waves can get enormous out there. They are scared to death. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, they, they have been trying to get back to shore. They've been working hard. They're exhausted. And all of a sudden, they look out on the lake, and here's Jesus walking on the water. And we see something about Peter here, because Peter immediately wants to go out and run to the Lord. So we see that part of his personality, he's impetuous. He is, uh, he's one of the first to act. He is not, and whenever you see the list of the disciples in the Gospels, Peter's always listed first. He's the one who's the most outspoken. He's the one who seems to be the most aggressive. And he's the one who seems to put his foot in his mouth uh, more frequently than any, any of the others. So we often identify with Peter because uh, we see a lot of ourselves in one way or another uh, in Peter. So he is going to walk on the water, and this shows his trust. But then, all of a sudden, he gets his eyes on the waves that are coming, and he forgets to focus on the Lord. He stops trusting him, and he starts to sink. He cries out to the Lord, and the Lord reaches out, rescues him, and he focuses on the Lord again. It's a great illustration of the fact that we need to go moment by moment trusting God, not getting our eyes on the storms of life, the details of life, but keeping our focus on the Lord. The second thing is an event that occurs in John 6, 66 to 69. And this is a great passage. It's at the end of a long day. It's at the end of the uh, Bread of Life discourse. They have fed the 5,000 with the fishes and the loaves. And then as Jesus teaches, many of the, his disciples begin to leave. And that's the uh, sense, not in a strict sense of a disciple, but those who are just coming to listen to him teach. And in John 6:66, we read from that time, many of his disciples went away uh, and walked no more with him. They began to realize that he was calling for that being a disciple, a true disciple, not a true believer. There's a difference between a believer and a disciple. A believer is simply someone who's trusted in Christ as Savior. They have eternal life and they can never lose that eternal life. 
but a disciple is someone who is a believer who has reached a point where they want to, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3.18, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're not just going to be someone who shows up uh, on church occasionally or Christianity is just something that's significant for them one morning a week, but it is their their life. It becomes um, internalized for them, and they want to grow and mature and truly serve the Lord with their life. So these disciples, fair-weather disciples, left. And then Peter turns to the twelve and says, Why don't you go away? Why are you still here? And in verse 68, Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Nobody else is going to teach us how to gain eternal life. Nobody is going to teach us how to grow and mature spiritually so that we can experience that fullness of life. Remember in John, Jesus said, I came not like a thief to destroy, but I came to, uh, I came to give life. That's eternal life. It's salvation. And secondly, to give life abundantly. That is realizing the abundance Christian life as we grow and mature as believers. So Peter recognizes this. Who, where shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And in John 69, he says, and we have believed and know that you are the Holy One of God. See, that's the issue all through John. How do you get saved? John says in John 20, 31, these are written, these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, not by believing and doing good, not by believing and repenting. Uh, repent is never used in the Gospel of John. Believe is used over 95 times to emphasize that's the core issue, is believing in Jesus Christ. And so we have believed and know that you are the Holy One of God. That's the Gospel. We believe you are the Messiah, and the role of the Messiah was to come and die for our sins. Then, so that's the second big event. The third big event is at uh, a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is far in the north of Israel, where there's an enormous rock escarpment. At the basic, uh, base of it, there were several caves. There was a temple to the Greek god Pan there because this was thought of as the entry to Hades or the entry to Sheol. And so this was the entry. So Jesus takes his disciples up there, and he's going to teach them about the significance of the rock. And this is described in Matthew 16, 13 to 21, Mark 8, 27 to 30, and Luke 9, 18 to 21. Now, there Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, it's another popped quiz, Jesus didn't just tell them things. He asked a lot of questions to get them to think about what he was saying. He said, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, that question is loaded because when he calls himself the Son of Man, he's using a term out of Daniel 7 that is a term for the future ruler of the kingdom of God on earth who will return and establish his kingdom on the earth. So it's a messianic title. It was understood to be a messianic title. So by the fact that he continued to call himself the Son of Man indicates he was claiming to be the God-man. He was human. Son of Man emphasizes his humanity. Son of God emphasized his deity. He said, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, just like 
if you've ever taught Sunday school or you've ever taught in any class and you ask students a question, some say one thing, some say something else, and they look at each other like we've never heard anything about this before. And so they're saying, well, there are some people who say you're John the Baptist, because by this time John the Baptist had been, had been martyred. Some say you're Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And so Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And this is when Peter, outspoken Peter, steps to the plate. He shows the, his initiative and he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the promised one. You are the son of the living God. Now, remember where they are. I'm going to show you a picture in just a minute. They're in front of this huge rock escarpment. And right then, Jesus answers and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, that is Petros, word for rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, it's interesting when he says on this rock, there are a lot of different views on that, and what I'm The best way to interpret this, when he says this rock, he's talking about himself as the God-man. He is the rock. And 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 what did what did Peter just say? He said, you are the son of the living God. He knows that he is God. And all through the Old Testament, God is called the rock. I'll show you a couple of verses in just a minute. So it's this rock that he is the living God that he is going to build his church. And then he says, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So here's a picture of the area there at Caesarea Philippi. And you see this huge rock escarpment that's his background. Jesus is taking what is there in the background. It it wasn't just by accident or by chance that they took a trip that day and walked up to Caesarea Philippi. took them most of the day probably to walk that far. And they got there, and Jesus is taking them there to use this rock escarpment, this whole scenario, as a training aid to teach this point. And this cave that you see here in the middle of the picture is a gate to Hades. And so he's using this to teach the fact that he is the uh, living God. He is the rock, capital R, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against him. And so this is the point that he is teaching. We have, he goes on to say that he is going to give to Peter the keys of the kingdom of the heavens, and whatsoever you bind upon the earth shall be bound, which in the Greek means have, will have already been bound in heaven. In other words, you're, when you are, as an apostle, are carrying out your mission, you are giving the gospel to those who, will, if they respond, they will have eternal life. And God has already determined that those who believe in the gospel will have eternal life, and those who don't, will not have eternal life. And so their authority resides not in, it, in themselves, but in the message that they are proclaiming related to Jesus Christ. And so that is what he emphasized here. He's not emphasizing that Peter is the foundation of the church. He's, he's not giving an, uh, uh, the Roman Catholic view here. He's not talking about Peter being the, the foundation of the church. He's talking about himself. And this plays out in the rest of Scripture that he is the chief cornerstone. Again and again, you have 
terms related to foundation, cornerstone, rock related to Jesus Christ. And this fits with Old Testament passages. For example, in Deuteronomy 32.4, Moses writes of God, He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And then in Deuteronomy 32.31, he says, For their rock, referring to the false gods of the pagans and the Canaanites, lowercase r, their rock is not like our rock, capital R, even our enemies themselves being judges. So again and again, you have passages throughout the Old Testament that describe God, not just God is a rock, but our God, the rock. So rock was another way of referring to God in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says on this rock, he's talking about himself, the identification of himself as the living God. Now, the next event is what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John who are later identified by Paul in Galatians uh, 2.9 as the three pillars of the church in uh, Jerusalem, they go with Jesus. They're personally invited to go with Jesus up on top of this mountain. We're not sure what mountain it was. Some say it was Mount Tavor. Others say it was up on uh, Mount Hermon. Nobody knows which mountain it was. They go up on this mount. And it's called the Mount of Transfiguration because that's what happened there. Jesus reveals his glory as the eternal Son of God. And so this is what happens when he does that. Peter says, and again, Peter's the spokesman. Peter's the first one to step out there and put his foot in his mouth, and he speaks before anything happens that is that explains the situation. He just immediately thinks he understands everything. And he says, he recognizes that along with Jesus, Moses and Elijah have also appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he's going to worship all three of them. And he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here if you wish. Let us make here three tabernacles to, for you and Moses and one for Elijah as if they're equal. And while he's speaking, God basically shows up on the scene and says, be quiet, Peter. That's the free translation here. God shows up. And a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter's talking when he should be listening. And when the disciples heard this, they fall on their face and are greatly afraid. And so it is here that Peter, and Peter refers back to this event in First Peter, uh, because and in Second Peter, this is where they saw the glory of the Lord, and this has a radical impact on Peter's thinking. So we've looked at the first four events, and the fifth event is that Peter struggles with forgiveness. This is an interesting theme when you put it together like this, because this is a little later on, after the Mount of Transfiguration, we're in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is giving a lot of instruction to the disciples at that point. And as they go through this time, Peter comes to the Lord in Matthew 18:21 and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. Peter's probably thinking that's being really kind if I forgive him seven times. I'm being really gracious. And then Jesus says, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. In other words, you continue to forgive them even if they take advantage of you. 
I mean, we take advantage of God's grace all the time, every time we sin. And the scripture doesn't say, well, after you've committed that sin 10,372 times, there will not be any more forgiveness. And so people come to the Lord and they beg him and they say, oh, I'm so sorry. And God, who's omniscient, says, don't try to pull the wool over my eyes. You're going to commit this sin 17,392 more times. And I will forgive you every single time you confess your sin. I'm never going to put a condition on it because Christ paid the penalty for that sin once and for all. All you need to do is just admit that you did it. You don't have to try to uh, show remorse, tell me you're never going to do it again because you know you will and I know you will. And so we all that's at stake here is for you to recognize and admit that you've committed the sin. So Peter then begins to understand a little bit more about forgiveness, that this is something that should characterize, it characterizes God's relationship with us, and it should characterize our relationship with others. And so this is the sort of what I call part one of his lesson on forgiveness. And then when we get to the night before he went to the cross, and they're in the upper room, and Jesus is washing their feet in order to, again, teach them the principle of cleansing from sin, He comes to Peter, and Peter, stepping right out there, talking about just exactly what he's thinking. He says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. That's the sense of, Lord, are you washing my feet? No, this isn't going to happen. And the Lord says to him, what I am doing, you don't understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter is saying, no, 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 you shall never wash my feet. He doesn't understand that this is, again, a a teaching aid, a training aid, a visual aid to understand the importance of forgiveness and cleansing. And so the Lord says to him, if I do not wash you, you will have no part with me. Now, we've gone through this many times, so I'll just hit the high points. Jesus uses two different words in this whole section when he talks about washing and bathing. The one word that he uses here is the word nipto. This is the word you'd use for just washing your hands or washing your feet, just or washing your face, just a partial washing. The other word, luo, indicates taking a bath. And so right after this, Peter is going to say, well, if I won't have any part with you unless you wash me, nipto, well, just bathe me all over. And he uses, um, uses the word luo. And the Lord says, no, no, no. All of you are cleansed except one. In other words, because everybody's already completely washed and cleansed of sin, all you need to do is have a partial washing, a partial cleansing each time you sin. Now, the imagery here and the words that are used here go back to uh, the Old Testament uh, ritual in the in the tabernacle, in the temple, that when a priest was... Uh, inaugurated into his role, he's anointed, then the priest was to be washed from head to toe. He had to take a bath, completely be submerged. It was a one-time event. Just as our salvation is a one-time event, we're forgiven of all sins, as we've studied in Ephesians 1.7. In him, in Christ, we have, as our present possession, we have redemption the forgiveness of sins, that, that is the cancellation of our sin. We have that in Christ. And so 
that is what happens positionally the instant we trust in Christ as Savior. But what happens is we go through life, we go places, we do things that dirty us spiritually, as it were, and we become unclean. We're walking according to our sin nature, not according to the Holy Spirit. And so there needs to be a partial washing or cleansing. And that's what was pictured by the priests. One time, complete washing. After that, whenever they went into the tabernacle of the temple, they just washed their hands at the, at the labor. So that was the picture of that partial cleansing. That was what that was to teach. So Jesus is teaching that what I do, you do for one another. Well, what he's teaching them is you need to, he forgives them by cleansing them. And that we are to do that for one another, which is to forgive one another, which is at the essence of the major command that's given at the end of John 13 and John 13, 34 and 35, that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. So Peter learns a second lesson in forgiveness. But then we come to the sixth big issue in Peter's life, that he denies the Lord. The Lord predicted that he would uh, deny him. And he said, Lord, Lord, I'm never going to deny you. And the Lord said, I will pray for you that your faith should not fail and that you would be strengthened. And Peter again says, no, Lord, even though everybody else fails you, everybody else stumbles, not me. I'm never going to deny you. And then that's exactly what happened. He denied the Lord uh, three times. Now, the next thing that happens that after that is Peter is at the empty tomb. This is described in Luke 2412, and which just simply summarizes things that went on there and, and he, that Peter runs to the tomb and he's the, the first one to get there. But in John 20, we read that as soon as Mary told Peter and John that the, that the tomb was empty, Peter took off with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going to the tomb and they ran together And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And so for all of eternity, we're going to know John runs faster than Peter, and Peter lost that race. He's learning humility. But John stopped at the entry, and Peter just ran right on in there and looked in and saw the linen clothes, the grave clothes lying there. And then he realizes that the tomb is empty. And what, John, uh, what Luke says is he left there and he goes away marveling. Now, that's a pretty, word, pretty uh, broad word there, marveling. I think one of the things he's thinking is, uh-oh. Jesus looked at me. He knows I betrayed him, and he's going to come back and say, I told you so. I bet that was going through his mind. Now, what we're told after this is that Peter then learns that lesson about forgiveness. And when Peter learns that lesson about forgiveness, uh, we have to put together a couple of passages uh, from other places. It, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15:5, where Paul is listing the people who were uh, saw the resurrected Lord, he lists Peter alone. He's not with the twelve. He says he was seen by Cephas, or Cephas, then by the twelve. So what happens is that somewhere after this time, when Peter sees the empty tomb, between that event and John 21, when Jesus shows up in the Galilee, 
They're out fishing in the boat and can't catch anything, and Jesus calls for them to come in. He's already brought some fish in, and, and he's cooking them, and he has them bring in. They've been fishing on one side of the boat. He says, cast your net on the other side of the boat, and they bring in a large haul. But then Peter realizes it's the Lord, and he just strips off his clothes and dives in the water to swim swim to the shore. He's already been forgiven at that point. So somewhere in there, there's a private meeting with the Lord, and he realizes forgiveness. He, at this point, Peter is coming to understand grace, that it's not dependent on him at all. It's dependent upon God's love and his mercy and the work that Christ did on the cross. And so this becomes an important part of his message. In fact, in Acts, part of his message will be to uh, accept He refers to the gospel as receiving the remission of sins, forgiveness of sins. So this becomes a major part of of Peter's understanding of the gospel and his understanding of the spiritual life. And then we come to the last event. And I'm not sure why this. We come to the last event, which is the tenth event which somehow didn't make it on that slide, and that's Peter's commissioning. And that's at the end of John 21, 15 to 19. John 21, 15 to 19, where three times Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? And we've gone through that passage. He uses two different words for love. Peter doesn't respond the right way. But the important part is that Peter's commissioned three times. He's given a command. The first one is to feed my lambs. That's the young Young believers, the lambs, and the word there for feeding is the word give them spiritual nourishments. That's why Peter says in First Peter 2.2 that we're to desire the sincere milk of the word that we can grow by it. He understands that the role of the pastor, the role of the, of the apostle was to feed the lambs, the young ones, as well as the adults. And the second command is, tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. And that has that same sense. It's feeding the sheep. You feed the sheep the word of God. And then the last command is, feeding my sheep. And that's a term for adults. So each command has a little different emphasis on how you're feeding, how you're protecting, how you're providing for those in the congregation, from the young ones to the mature ones. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And so that's the point. He understands that knowledge of the word is key to spiritual growth, which is why his parting shot is, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've looked at Peter before Christ, Peter's search for the Messiah. Third, we looked at Peter as one of the twelve disciples. And now we're going to look as Peter as an apostle in the early church. And what were the things that we learned there? Well, there are several key things. I have ten key things that happen in Acts. First of all, we see Peter in the upper room. We see in the first 15 chapters that Peter is the leader of the apostles in Jerusalem. But what's interesting is Saul of Tarsus gets saved in Acts chapter 9. Up to Acts chapter 9, it's Peter, 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 Peter. In Acts chapter 9, we get Saul. Then we go back to Peter in Acts 10 and 11. Then we get 
Peter and then Saul in Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 13, and then we, we have Paul, and then in Acts chapter 15, it's back to Peter, and that's the end of Peter. We don't hear from Peter anymore in Acts. After that, it's Paul. So it starts off with the growth of the church, the early church in the Jewish community, primarily Jewish, and it's not until Acts 10 that Gentiles are welcomed in, and they come in through the ministry of Peter in Acts 10 and 11. Acts chapter 9 is when Paul is saved just before that event, but Paul's the one who will become the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter is specifically the apostle to the Jews. So that's the pattern that you see in Acts. So in the upper room, Jesus told them to wait until the Holy Spirit came. That was a one-time event. The Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. But while they're waiting in the upper room, this is the same room where they had celebrated the Passover the night before Jesus went to the cross, Peter takes the initiative that we need to find someone to replace Judas because we have to have a, a full contingent of 12, uh, 12 disciples. And so they select Matthias as the 12th disciple. Then, right after that, the 12, because the pronoun is very uh, specific at the beginning of chapter 2, then they, they who. If you look back to the previous two verses, the they who are the 12. They go to the temple and they receive the Holy Spirit. Not every believer at that instant received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends first and uniquely to the to the to the twelve, probably Matthias was there. We don't know. Nothing is said whether he received it or not. There's a big debate. We went over that in Acts. I'm not going to get into that. But the Holy Spirit descends, and as evidence of the descent of the Holy Spirit, they saw a visual cue, which was flames over their heads. Not the whole 120. You got to be careful with that pronoun. And the pronoun refers to the 12, not the 120, because the 12 are the foundation of the church. Okay? Not the 120. It's those who are the foundation of the church, according to Paul in Ephesians 2.20, that are the ones who are the foundation. So they first receive the Holy Spirit. And then the question comes up, well, what in the world's going on? Are these guys drunk? Peter stands up. He's the spokesman, has his first sermon there on the southern steps of the, of the temple, where he uh, again challenges them to trust in Christ as a Messiah and to be baptized. And right there, there's at least, now they're saying there's at least two or three hundred mikvah. That was the ceremonial uh, bath that Jews would go to on their way into the temple. So there's, there's, over 200 baptistries right there, which makes it real easy to baptize uh, 5,000 people. So that's Acts chapter 1 and Peter on the day of Pentecost. That's Acts chapter 2. Then we have Peter and John healing the lame man at the temple the next day. That's in Acts chapter 3. And again, he addresses the Jews and says they have to change their mind about Jesus. They have to repent. So the times of refreshing will come. That's the kingdom. We have to go back to that. But they don't, so the kingdom doesn't come. The kingdom's postponed until Jesus comes back. And then in uh, Acts chapter 4, we have Peter and John arrested by the Sanhedrin, and they're told to keep their mouths shut, and that's where Peter says, we have to obey God rather than man. 
Then in the next chapter, we see Peter's authority over Ananias and Sapphira. When Ananias and Sapphira lied, uh, it, it wasn't that there was anything wrong with them holding back part of the money from the sale. It was that they lied about it. And so because they lied about it, uh, uh, Peter is going to exercise his authority, and they are condemned, and they die instantly. Now, that doesn't always happen whenever we sin and we lie against the Holy Spirit. If it did, there probably the church wouldn't have survived the first century. But what's interesting is every time you have the beginning of God's plan and program in a new dispensation, there seems to be something serious that happens where people disobey God and God lowers the boom and, and a lot of people die because they're disobedient to him. Sodom and Gomorrah occurs not long after the call of Abraham and the giving of the Abrahamic covenant. When you have uh, God calling out the Jews from Egypt, you have all the firstborn get killed in the uh, in the tenth plague. That does these kinds of things are not normative. They are the things that happen uniquely at a dispensational shift. When God is establishing his authority that you're not going to mess with me on this, I'm serious about it, and I'm going to show you how serious I am in this event. It's usually just at the beginning of each each dispensation. So in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira die under Peter's authority. In uh, 6 point in Acts chapter 8, Peter and John come to the Samaritans, and they receive the baptism by the Holy Spirit. The same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2 happens to them because under apostolic authority, they have the keys that of the kingdom. That is the authority. And so they are the ones who now, uh, they were there when the Jews started the church. They're there when the Samaritans are brought in under apostolic authority, with the baptism by the Spirit to show that there's one Spirit, one baptism, one church. And then Peter will be there uh, in Acts chapter 15 when the Gentiles are added. But before that, we have the seventh event, which was where Peter heals the paralyzed and the dead. Same kind of thing. People thought that if they just had Peter's shadow fall on them, they would be healed. Later on, the same kinds of events all take place with Paul, and people thought that if they just touched the hem of his garment, they would be healed. Same kind of thing is going on, and it's a demonstration that God is at work in establishing the foundation of the church. It doesn't go on after that. It just happens at the beginning of the dispensation. Eighth, Peter and Cornelius. Peter is a strict, devout Jew. He's only eating kosher food. But God gives him a vision that he's declared all things clean. Big tablecloth comes down with all the trafe, uh, all the unclean animals there. And God says, take and eat. You can eat lobster, catfish. You can eat uh, pork and bacon. Have all you want. And Peter says, no, 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 Lord. Unclean things never pass my lips. This happens three times. Finally, Peter gets the point. Just after that, there's a knock on the door. It's three Gentiles. Gentiles did not go into the home of Orthodox Jews, observant Jews, because that would make the house unclean. Observant Jews didn't go into the house of Gentiles. But Peter's learned the point. God has declared them clean. So when they come, they say, 
we, we were sent here to get you to come back to the house of our, of, of Cornelius. And he goes back there and gives them the gospel. And the same thing happens in terms of here they're going to speak with languages as they did in Acts 2. The Samaritans didn't, but they do in Acts 10. And it's the unity of the church, all under apostolic authority, all with the same basic events that took place in terms of the coming of the Spirit. Then, Acts chapter 12, Peter's in prison. The, the church prays for him to be released. He's released. They don't believe it when he knocks on the door. And after that, he goes to other places. Now, there's some who have interpreted that to mean that's when he left Jerusalem and he goes to Babylon. I'm not sure you can put that weight on that verse, but he certainly got out of town and he went somewhere where he wouldn't be subject to the authority of the Sanhedrin. He is next seen three chapters later at the Jerusalem Council, and that's the last time that we see see Peter. And this is when the the question at hand is, what are we going to do with these Gentiles? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to eat kosher? Uh, what what demands do we place on them? How are they saved? How does this whole thing work where we're one in the body of Christ? And Peter recounts what happens in Acts 10 and 11 about God opening the door to the Gentiles, just as he did to the Samaritans, and that they're all part of the body of Christ, and we're not going to put any obligations on them other than the gospel, and that they should live in an honorable way. That's why they are are not to commit adultery and other things that are mentioned in that particular passage. So those are the ten events that we have coming to uh, Peter's basic life in Acts. And after that, we don't know a whole lot about what happened to Peter until we get to the end of 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 13, when he says that he's writing from Babylon. He's mentioned only one other time in all of the epistles, and that's in Galatians chapter 2, when Paul talks about him as being present in uh, Antioch. And he came to Antioch, and there he, he backed up on his grace orientation, and he's going to now only eat clean food, only eat kosher food, only eat with the Jews and follow the law, and Paul had to straighten him out in Galatians chapter 2, and that brought things back into order. Now, there are some traditions. The last thing I want to talk about is some traditions about Peter. Some of this is tradition. Some of this is related to specifically what Scripture says. For example, Galatians 2.9 clearly states that Peter went to Antioch. Now, I don't have a slide for it, but Antioch is in far, far northwestern Syria. Today, that would be just south of the Turkish border. Now, that's important because when Peter wrote 1 Peter, he's sending it to those who live in Pontus and Bithynia and Cappadocia. That's just across the border into Turkey. So Antioch was the strong sort of mother church that sent out first uh, uh, Peter, um, excuse me, Paul and uh, John, Mark, and Barnabas in the first missionary journey. Later, it was Paul and Silas. And so it became a, a foundational church for sending out missions. 
The, now, according to church history, church tradition in the second century, uh, you, you have a, a major church leader there named Ignatius in the early part of the second century. And Eusebius, who's a fourth century uh, historian and bishop of Caesarea, writes the earliest church history that we have, identified Ignatius as the successor to Peter in Antioch. Now, that's all. I, I can't say that's, that's not biblical. It's just according to early church history and the information that we have. And Eusebius stated that Peter established his headquarters there, and it's from Antioch that he went to Bithynia and Pontus and Cappadocia and Galatia. But it's also his base from which he went east, and if you go east from there, you go to Babylon. And so that's where the largest Jewish community outside of Israel was at that time. And this was where Peter, the apostle to the Jews, would go. And so there's this, this hole in his chronology. And it's believed that from 44 to 49, he is living and ministering in uh, in Babylon, in literal Babylon. And of course, as I pointed out when we covered that passage in 1 Peter 5.13, that Babylon there was literal just as every other geographical location in 1 Peter was literal. It's not a code word for Rome. That Peter actually went to Babylon and that's where he wrote 1 Peter directed to the Jewish uh, Jewish background believers that were living in the what we call central Turkey uh, today. Now, another place that Peter went that we know of from Scripture is to Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 9, 5, uh, Paul mentions him as traveling with his wife and being completely supported financially by the Corinthians while he was there. And this is also supported by uh, church history and references later on. Uh, one of the bishops of Corinth in the middle of the second century, this is, you know, 140, 150, that area, uh, <clears throat> in his writings associated Peter with Corinth, that he had had a significant ministry there and ministering especially to the Jews in Corinth. And then, uh, then there's also, uh, Rome. There's, but there's no evidence that Peter was in Rome until at least the mid-50s, if not later. He was not the founder of the church in Rome. He is not uh, mentioned there. Even when Paul writes the epistle to the Romans, there's already a strong, uh, a strong contingent of believers that are there. There were uh, Jewish believers that were there earlier that in 50 A.D. that Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome because they were having a lot of arguments and disagreements about somebody called Crestos, is how it was spelled, C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S, which, of course, is a reference to Christ. So he was, Jesus Christ was causing a lot of division in the Jewish community, so Claudius just said, all of you leave, and... Um, it was after that, that that Peter came. So he's not the founder of the Church of Rome. He wasn't a bishop in Rome. He was brought there under arrest, and it was there that he died. Now, we only have a couple of sources, mostly based on tradition, 
that say that Peter was crucified there in Rome. Most people believe this is true. He was, was crucified in Rome. He did not want to be crucified in the normal fashion as the Lord was crucified because he said he wasn't worthy of that. So he was crucified upside down. That is the, the tradition. So we've covered the basics on the life of Peter. Uh, what stands out? I think three things stand out. First of all, grace. He learns about forgiveness. He learns about forgiveness through the teaching of our Lord and then through his personal experience of the forgiveness of our Lord for denying him, which would seem to be one of the most horrible sins that we can do is to deny the Lord who bought us. And he uses that, same, that phrase in first, or Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Second thing that stands out is Peter learns humility. He's this brash, outspoken uh, first person to stand up and say something, usually the wrong thing. And over time, he matures, he learns humility, and we see him emphasize that in First Peter 5, 6, and 7, where he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God by casting all your care upon him. And then... Uh, Last, he learns about grace in terms of the spiritual life, which is how he closes out the epistle. Second uh, Peter, verse 318, grow in the grace. We grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he emphasizes is grace, understanding grace, understanding God's love, his unmerited forgiveness, his provision for us of everything, the fact that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So we learn about forgiveness, we learn about humility, we learn about grace, which applies to both of the previous topics. So that's Peter in an hour. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to review Peter, to come to this understanding of who he, who he was and the way your grace transformed his life, just as your grace can transform our lives. That as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, studying your word and applying it as we walk by the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit transforms us from faith to faith as we grow day by day, uh, learning to uh, learning your word and your work by the Holy Spirit in creating in us the character of Christ. And we pray that we may have the humility and the passion that Peter had to serve you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.